Welcome to The Greg Reese Show. This is my second episode, and today's guest is Celia Farber, who is a, a uh, probably the most uh, famous uh, um, journalist against Big Pharma that we know of, probably back in the day, but we'll talk more about that when we get started. She just released her book, Serious Adverse Events and Uncensored History of AIDS. Celia, thank you very much for joining me. It's good to see you. Greg, it's great to be here. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And you and I have had had many off the air. Yeah, this is the first time I think we've had a video convo. We've had some phone convos in the past. so And it's been a while. It's so, been a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, last time we talked, you didn't have your book out yet. You were, um, you were running through some of the uh, final last-minute struggles to get it out uh, how's it been how's the it's been out for like a week now right it actually isn't out yet it, it it seems like it's out because of this new uh thing we have going on in the world where a book comes out it's pre it's available on pre-order and i was really thrilled to see that it has that little best it says bestseller on amazon and this part cracks me up a little bit it's number one in its category and its category is aids so I don't know how many books are in that category, but it's number one. Well, I think it's going to be great. I think that's a, um, uh, if there's one thing that people are waking up to, it is the evil of Anthony Fauci. That's for sure. Yeah. You know. Yeah, the uh, complex evil of Anthony Fauci, you might say. Yeah. Um. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. I know uh, when we first met, that was um, uh, it was an honor. You were one of the one of the people I've gotten to meet in my job. That uh, was a great honor because what I've learned, I've only been in this. I don't even really consider myself a journalist, but I've been in this line of work for about five years. And one of the things I've learned is that there aren't a lot of people in this business that seem to be in it for. Um and I'm not toot my own horn, but for what I got in it for, and I kind of assumed everyone in the business was, well, I mean, I guess I wasn't that naive, but in it for actual truth and justice. Uh, I think I knew, I think I was a big boy when I got in it five years ago. So I kind of knew the deal, but it's been disappointing, even though, um, you know, the, like the amount of people that seem to be in it for other reasons, you are one of those people, I think, who, who got in it for truth and justice and you got in it when back in the eighties, yeah, like in the Stone Ages. Yeah. <laughs> before the internet, before. Yeah, I was a magazine writer, a magazine. Uh, I guess if I had to put a label to it, I would say long form print investigative reporting. And long form could mean up to up to 15,000, anywhere between two and 15,000 words. So it was these um, incredibly laborious pieces that were put together that involved travel sometimes to other other continents subject to get get a do an interview get a quote transcribe it put it together it was a completely different animal than uh the media landscape we have today which i which i love i love the media landscape of today it has so much more you know the it, like your a big part of it, I you, really, and I mean this, Greg. When I say your name, everybody says everybody loves you. Everybody says, "I love Greg Reese. I love Greg Reese," you know. And and to get your stuff across 
in that landscape. It just took so much more to get anything across in that in that old landscape, if you know what I mean. I I did pretty well though in getting getting uh forbidden material across. Yeah. And then, and then of course um many gigantic explosions later and uh <laughs> I was not so much in the profession anymore. But um but I'm here and I'm back and my book is back. My book is actually republished after it was originally published. You wouldn't have known, but it was published in 2006. Uh, very, very, very quietly. It sort of sank like a stone as soon as it came out. And there was there was no uh, no press release. There was no there weren't even hit. There weren't even attack reviews, just nothing. And then uh I had a tremendously difficult period of time ahead of me. And from and then I things started to get a little better. And especially when COVID came, sorry, let me say that differently. After I came out of the very difficult years, after a series of very strong attacks, after a piece I did in Harper's, I began to be interested in my book coming out again, but it seemed to be, I would say, bedeviled. I couldn't make it work i couldn't make it happen i tried many different ways and it wasn't for getting rejected anyway none of this really matters point is i I, i'm I'm very happily now um uh i i it's coming out on chelsea green and i'm really happy that it's being published at chelsea green they've done a fantastic job they've improved it so much it's now annotated has a foreword by mark crispin miller it has an epilogue by me and it's coming out at a time that I feel is the perfect time right now, not because I expect people to slog through what did or did not cause AIDS, which is really kind of, it's part of the book, but it's not that it's not, I would say the arc of the book, the arc of the book is how did this apparatus of totalitarian public health come into being and so you're sort of hearing the cries the desperate cries along the way of the true scientists the true mds uh you know of course the the people the real people who are being hit and targeted it's it mirrors covid so precisely in so many ways but it was smaller it was like we had the tail and the foot of the beast right and then covid it's like the whole beast well, that's what's so interesting about your work with uh, AIDS is that it's been used so often as a as a sort of a frame of reference for everyone to wrap their heads around what's going on now. It seemed to be a beta test of what we're experiencing now in every way involving, including the same players involved and everything. I think uh, Jamie Deluxe has done a great job highlighting your work in such a way uh, that I've seen and um, a, a great deal of other people, including... Uh, RFK Jr. Uh, when was the book originally released? Where it two thousand six. Two thousand six. Okay, yes, yeah. That time, that was um, like you said, the whole climate has changed uh, now from definitely yeah. from two thousand six. And yeah, uh, and, and the climate at the time when the in two thousand, I would say that the years between two thousand six and two thousand eight were when. Um, public loathing, which wasn't really public loathing, but like manufactured loathing against people like me, we were called AIDS deniers or AIDS denialists, was at an absolute frenzy. It was the absolute, it was the worst thing you could be. 
and uh, that's a, that's a whole kind of other chapter. It's a whole other dis. I mean, I hope we get into it somewhat, but I I feel that the most the thing that they do most successfully is they engineer shame, um, like these shame corridors into which they place, you know, entire subjects. And, 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 and at the time we didn't really know how to get out of those. And now what makes me so happy about today is that everybody can see the play. It's like the play is on the stage, but you know how it's going to go. And, you know, like, for example, when Woody Harrelson does his monologue on Saturday Night Live, and he says that the media, however he phrased it, I don't remember, the media is owned by this, what he calls drug cartel, rightly so, you know, of course, he means pharma. And then, you know, within five minutes or whatever, they're all in you, they're all attacking him, even though he just referenced that. So it's like, all parts can see all the other parts. And back in the day of this stuff going down, nobody could see. So it's like if you got attacked by, as I did, you know, oh my God, the nation and Columbia Journalism Review. And it was the end of, it was after a piece I did in Harper's. So, so some people believed that it something really atrocious had happened in my text that I had brought into Harper's. And it really was, uh, uh, you know, a catastrophe. And they had to go to certain documents to read who the attackers were and who was funding them and what the scientists who were defending my piece were saying. You see what I mean? It was really yeah. like I closed off corridors. Um, today, I, I know everybody's getting you. You work for, of course, the most attacked news organization and probably in the world Infowars, work with work at yeah. right and so none of this is um news to you i'm just describing the media climate then versus the media climate now now it may seem like it's worse now but i think it's better now because it's so it's so transparent now yeah and so formulaic yeah, well, I think the, uh, I mean, certainly the accusation of being an AIDS denier or an anything denier, I think, has lost a lot of its power now. Everyone's kind of getting sick of that and they're seeing through it, the same language being used to, to attack people and shut people, shut people down. When, right. you were, when you were doing these stories in the, for Spin Magazine and Anthony Fauci and Big Pharma, how did it work back then? Were you assigned the job or did you, were you able to choose? Yeah, yeah that was what was so, that was what was, you might say, a, it was a really anomalous thing in my history is that, so you know this quote, freedom of the press is limited to those who own one. I don't know actually who said that. I don't know if it was, I should know, I.F. Stone or somebody said that. So so, um, the, the Guccione's senior and junior he, they owned magazines. Bob Guccione Sr. was the publisher of Penthouse. Yes, I remember his, that name, yeah. His eldest son, Bob Guccione Jr., was the founder and owner and publisher of Spin Magazine. So in that magazine, Bob Guccione Jr. could do anything he wanted. And he and I agreed that a, he called AIDS at the time. We're talking late 80s now. He said, this is the Vietnam of our generation. 
So, and I was a, a very young reporter begin, just beginning. I was actually still in college. I was obsessed with AIDS for reasons not worth getting into. It started, I guess, with that I was certain, like everybody, I was going to die from it. So I had an intense research-based obsession, and I quickly went down what we today call rabbit holes. And he basically said, look, why don't I, I'm going to make a column. I'm going to give you a column and, you know, just go nuts, right? Just keep, well, we're just going to do this every month. It can't be one article. It's got to, it started with one article that I worked on for a year. And he then said, let's just make it a column. So every month in spin for 10 years was a column that was, as I said, anywhere between maybe, you know, could have been 2000 words or 10,000 words. They weren't columns. They were feature articles month after month after month inside a a magazine that I, I don't think you would call it. Uh, well, I guess it had that kind of enfant terrible a little bit, you know, it was supposed to come up against Rolling Stone, which was considered stodgy and establishment. But I can't say that the magazine as a whole was behind the AIDS column, and that's putting it mildly, only that the publisher was believed in the kind of journalism that I also believed in. I didn't really know there was another kind, which is go after what everybody else isn't saying. Don't just repeat what everybody else is saying, because first of all, it's not it's not a story, right? It's not a story when a plane lands safely. Right. So it wasn't a story to me that every scientist in the world was saying HIV caused AIDS and it was about to, it was spreading all over, et cetera, right? The, it was a story to me that there was a very esteemed scientist at UC Berkeley who was saying, I don't agree at all. That thing is harmless. I wouldn't mind being injected with it. You know, I just said, wow, that's so interesting. And so did the publisher, Bob Buccioni Jr. So that's how it all began. It was a very, it was a very tormented history the column was uh i keep calling it column what the feature the feature yeah uh, um uh we were we were we were being attacked from from all sides from within from without with uh with all kinds of things lawsuits and plants and saboteurs and they were um it was it, they were rough years you know but we were we were we were both very very certain that this was journalism and we were going to keep doing it. Did Guccione introduce you to the subject and the story or it was something you both? No, I brought it to him. Um, I, I had, I had run into somebody in the very beginning who, who said that he had avoided the mainstream um, protocols at the time, not mainstream, the Orthodox protocols. And he had taken an AIDS lipid sub, sorry, egg lipid substance in Israel. And then he had been cured of AIDS. So that was what lit, and and Gary Null at the time was writing similar similar articles in Penthouse. Gary Null was probably the very first to sort of open people's minds at all to the thought that that this could be about something other than just you know deadly virus, and if you have it, you're going to die. So you went so to I him. Brought, I brought it to him. I brought it to him, and basically just kept pestering you know memos and what people were telling me. Something's not right. Something's not right. And uh, I spent a year with an editor, another editor at the magazine, developing this first article that was about this kind of underground, sort of like Dallas Buyers Club. I, I, I never even saw that movie, and I should, but 
I know that movie is about this under, it's about an underground community where they have to make their own uh, treatments because the government yes. is withholding. Yes. So, um, so you weren't working at spin at the time you started working at spin for this story because of Guccione. You- oh, no, sorry. I was working there. I started as an intern and then I became a, something like research assistant and then eventually. Wow. Yeah. How old were you when you started writing started when I was an intern? Yeah. How so. old were you when you, when you pitched this idea to Guccione? I want 19 or 20, 20, just about 20, maybe. It's a great story, Celia. Like, um, I mean, like I said in the introduction, there's so few people in this industry, uh, unfortunately, that seem to be in it for, you know, actually seeking out truth and justice and, and, you know, shining the light of truth on things like so many people today are interested in and motivated by. And back then, uh, at such a young age, you would think that there would the industry would be full of people... Um, like that. I mean, after since COVID, I, I I don't really feel that way anymore. I've changed my perspective on things. Uh, COVID was very enlightening. But did you feel like uh, were there other people in the, your industry? You said there was a lot of people at Spin that were against it. Okay, so I I would say that the, okay, so you know, Watergate created a subculture, the myth of Watergate, the whole psyop and myth of Watergate created this subculture of like a, a, sh- a short era where investigative journalism was, um, was let's just say, um, compelling, right? Like it was like its own little, like what punk was to rock and roll. Like it was just this. Yeah subculture movement where people really want so there were there there was there were there was a lot of really good investigative journalism going on at the time i was by no means the only one doing investigative journalism it's just that this was a very sacred cow subject very sacred cow oh yeah and uh so there was tremendous disagreement inside the magazine about whether we whether this was an embarrassment as much of the staff felt or whether this was real journalism as, as any decent rock and roll magazine should be doing it as Guccione and I felt. So there was a schism for sure. So the rock and roll, I, I, I had a rock rock background when I, I had grown up in Sweden, I had a rock background and I, and the way I had internalized the rock ethos was consistent with the work that I was doing this, this kind of work. But I, I discovered that inside of the rock culture and ethos at that time, Spin Magazine, there was so much conformity. Uh, and especially on subjects like this, there was like a deep desire to conform, obey, and not be different from, from, from you know, government diktat and mass media diktat and even public health. Yeah. Uh, culture and dig so that 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 threw me that totally threw me there was in the 80s it seemed to me uh pop culture and music in the 80s was the first time um it seems to me where the idea of sort of a conformity to the system became kind of hip and cool or at least it seemed that way it was Mm -hmm. softening in the in the music scene so like that when, would you say that the schism that you experienced against it was mostly based on sort of like a empathy or sympathy for the homosexual community, and it just seemed like a subject that 
you know, yeah, great question. you just exactly don't question it kind of thing. I think that was the official reason given why nobody should touch this subject with a barge pole because it was labeled homophobic to talk about environmental quote unquote lifestyle causes of AIDS. Whereas I countered that if you actually really care about gay men and what's getting them sick, then you really go right to the root. All of my thoughts, my ideas that were contrarian came from gay, my gay sources who were in the fast lane lifestyle in New York. That's where it all began, right? So I knew that it wasn't homophobic stuff, but yes, you're quite right. That was part of it, right? The, that it, it was, it was like political correctness almost didn't even have a name in these days, but it was the earliest kind of woke. Yes. Um, they also felt that, it, and here was the big weapon against it. If we quest, questioned interviewed scientists who dissented from orthodox Fauci and view on HIV and AIDS, we were discouraged, uh, we were lessening the fear in people, discouraging them from, from, from using condoms, from adhering to safe sex, and thereby killing people potentially. Right. So this idea that coverage of a complex subject could kill people yeah. was this new terrible thing that was very hard to counter. And most editors, not Guccione, to his credit, to his eternal credit, most editors stopped it right there when they heard that, you know? Like, yeah. Well, no one else was really covering any of this. I mean, uh, well, definitely not as heavily as you guys were, but do you, I mean, you would know... Uh, the New York native actually deserves full credit for starting the whole ball rolling. You probably may not even know who they were, but that was a, um, a very high quality uh, gay weekly in New York, a print weekly newspaper, the New York native. And in the early days of the New York native, they used to have all the exchanges between, uh, I think I'm getting this right, Tennessee Williams and maybe Gore Vidal, I don't know, you know, it was like a, it was a pretty was sort of fairly literary gay, gay weekly magazine. And the publisher Chuck Ortlib was the very first one to somehow twig onto this Berkeley retrovirologist, Peter Duisberg, who'd written this paper that was a, that was a bomb to the whole HIV theory. So I saw that cover of the New York native on the stand walking down the street in Greenwich village and stopped. It said it had Gallo on one side, Duisburg on the other. Gallo saying HIV kills like a truck. It would kill Clark Kent. Duisburg saying it's harmless. I wouldn't mind being injected with it. And then it said, which man is right? So uh, Chuck set the whole thing off. I kind of went galloping back to the office with that. Um, extremely excited to pursue this. I put a call into Duisburg's lab. I did get shot down right away by my the person I reported to, my my immediate editor. Um, Duisburg called me back the next morning and uh, early. I jumped out of bed, turned on the tape recorder, did my first interview with him, transcribed it right away put it under Guccione's door. He read it and called me and said, 
this is the most important interview I will ever publish. And so we were off to the races. So I was a little bit uh, disobedient there to my immediate supervisor. It's an exciting story. It could be, um, I could see, a, uh, I could see it made into a movie. I'm sure people have, I'm sure you've heard that before um, in the past few years, probably, but uh, you know, I think we're all living a movie, Greg, right? Yeah. You all of us every day. This <laughs> yeah, all, it is. Everything is, is, is like a movie. I'd like things to be less like a movie. Yeah. Point, yeah. Point well yeah. I mean, because people are interested in, in journalism in some way, it has this romance for people. And um, I could certainly do a lot of crushing their <laughs> crushing their romantic notions about what it's about what it's really like what it's really like or what it was like even then, which is was sort of considered the heyday of print journalism, I would say, between like, you know, between Watergate and and between I almost want to say between Watergate and the advent of the Huffington Post, which was a death knell that was one of the death knells for journalism in that um, the walls and floors were removed from the structure. And Ariana Huffington said, whoever comes in here, you have access to our hive of other writers and other minds. And uh, that's how you're going to, in other words, it's sort of a bit, it's, you might say serfdom, but Totally different subject, not important right now. Well, I mean, it, I was just going to ask, what would be if 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 you if we did have someone who uh, idealized the whole idea of journalism and truth seeking and all that stuff? How what kind of story could you tell right now that would crush their ideas of uh, <laughs> of what journalism is like or the whole idea of that? I'd like to hear some stories from the eighties. Yeah. I can only imagine it was very very controlled back then. I would think, but at the same time. I, I grew up in the 80s. I'm sure there was a bunch of people in the field that wanted to be journalists, I would think. What I what I felt at the time was that there there was, as I say, schism, right? So I knew what, what Guccione wanted. To, I, know, I knew he wanted danger, conflict, tension, to be on the edge of a story. The first story I read that I made me want to work at spin was by robert keating and it was an expose of live aid i will keep this very short but live aid was also a sacred cow and bob keating revealed how live aid ha was you might today we'd, we'd, we'd call it a psyop and it turns out that that the the powers behind it were actually let's just say it didn't it didn't help the people of ethiopia as it was supposed to do and there was a lot that was not that was not good about it it was quite dark about it and it the the money went in the wrong direction and it and it it um it helped uh uh evil forces okay so he 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 did that piece i read that piece and i said wow this is incredibly exciting stuff it's uh it's a tradition of well my 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 father who was a a veteran of radio broadcasting put gave me three words when I asked him about journalism when I was about maybe 18 and the three words apply to this conversation. He said, I, I can sum it up for you in three words, penetrate the ostensible. 
penetrate the ostensible. So I, that was my, that was my thing. That was my vibe penetrate, you know, go, if, if it seems this is the story, the really exciting thing to do is go behind and get the real story that nobody thought was the real story. Okay. So back to your question. Um, so Peter Duisberg, in terms of that formula, penetrate the ostensible, he comes along. It's sort of like a dream story, a top I mean, really top in terms of how science is measured. Um, scientists in the U.S. imported from the Max Planck Institute in Germany, very young member of National Academy of Sciences, Nobel candidate, um, et cetera, et cetera. So this was not like just, you know, one of the scientists who are, you might say, a dime a dozen. He was at the very top. And so for him to come out in no uncertain terms and say Gallo's HIV theory is completely wrong. And in fact, it's it's insane to say that a retrovirus could, could kill cells and kill an immune system because they don't do that as a class of viruses, right? We're leaving out the whole viruses conversation right now because we're in the 80s as we're talking. So um, the crushing thing was to quickly discover that both people at the magazine, people in the outside media, people who were, you know, maybe reviewing spin or talking about spin and, and, and certainly the AIDS activist community absolutely turned against and despised what we thought was such a fascinating discussion to have. We thought it was innocent. We thought it innocent in the sense of what if Duisburg is right? We didn't feel that we were sinning against anything, right? We thought this was just like follow the path. It's like if somebody like who am I thinking of? Um, Feynman, uh, Richard Feynman. You know, he was the lone wolf on what really happened with the Challenger explosion, right? So if you if you can imagine being a journalist and someone's going to go interview Feynman, what did you find out? What happened to you as a result? And then everybody around is just saying drop it. You're embarrassing us. You know, we're, we're getting attacked. We're be, it, it was not popular. It was not well received. And I was, uh, I, I don't want to talk about this too much, but I want to talk about it enough to answer your question. Cause you asked, what was it that was crushing? To be honest, this is what was crushing to me because I wanted it to be like, I was part of a team and a, and a tribe. And we all believed in this. This is what we do here. Like, this is what we do here, right? We, yeah. yeah. Well, you were 20 years old when you got started. I would imagine just like any 19, 20-year-old uh, with such an exciting, thrilling story in a, a, you know, in a job like that, uh, I would imagine most would, would, would feel the same way, you know? And, and it would be quite the uh, surprise, I think, for anyone, for most, like I said, to, to discover that the people that or around you on your job aren't exactly on the same page, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I almost want to ask, you know, in your, and you said you don't consider yourself a journalist. I mean, you're I, in that case, nobody is. And, and I say that too, actually, I don't, I, and I, I think that's an interesting conversation. What is a journalist? Is there such a thing? Are we all journalists? But there's a spirit of journalism. We certainly agree, and that, and you certainly embody that. But, but I, I wonder if there's ever been, if the, in the, did you say you've been in it for five years? Yeah. 
if there's ever been something like that for you where like you just felt like this is so important and, and you just didn't find um doesn't necessarily have to be you don't have to give me like secrets of infowars but i'm just wondering if you've ever encountered that well i've been in a very unique situation my job uh from day one when i it was my first day when i got hired i was hired to do multiple things other than just do reports but when it came to reports i was told uh by rob do he said pick a story you think is important do your best to tell the truth and then here's the password and login to upload it we had youtube at the time we didn't have band yet and uh, that was it. And then I said, uh, well, wait, should I, should I like check with someone first or have someone look at it first? And he just kind of gave me a dirty look and said, we don't have time for that. So, wow. uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's exactly, uh, I've, I've had three times, I think Alex has requested I do a story on something. Like once he wanted me to do a history of Bill Gates, um, uh, he, he asked me to do a, a breakdown of Satanism. Uh, and I can't remember the third one, but... Um, but yeah. that, other than that, I just do whatever I want and I just upload it and no one ever sees it until it airs. And uh, so it's a very unique situation. What I have seen in the past five years is I've seen I've made friends who work at other companies. And I what I did notice is during COVID, uh, a lot of people and I'm not going to name names, but a lot of people in these alternative media companies that are supposedly out there challenging the truth and fighting the mainstream narrative, very few of them allowed anyone to report on negative vaccine stories or I think Infowars was really the only one of our size that, that was, that was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a third rail subject. Now that's an interesting, cause that's an, that has an exact, an almost exact replica kind of moral, the, the moral psyop wrapped into it. Like if you say vaccines aren't safe, you're dissuading people from taking vaccines and then you're killing people. So that's that would be the same identical accusation. Yeah. That, but to your yeah. So I haven't I didn't keep track of it that closely, but it did seem like a, a lot of conservative libertarian type alt media type uh, outfits did not go there. Yeah. Like I said, I have friends who worked at different places and they were told they, they would bring stories and they were told, no, we're not doing that. We're not reporting on it. Uh, and they didn't, no one, no one really reported on it until it started coming out thanks to smaller uh, organizations and, and InfoWars. I will easily say that is my proudest moment. There's been a lot of times we can talk maybe later in this conversation about current events where I'm, um, where I am somewhat discouraged with my job. Like in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm just reporting on what's being like a play that's being orchestrated, like some type of theatrical play. I feel like that's my job is like, well, today this is what they did. But because a lot of times I feel like I'm just reporting like, what is, is it truth? You know, but when it comes to COVID and it comes to the vaccines, I've heard several people call into the show uh, where I work and say that if it wasn't for us, they might, they might've gotten it. And that's all I need to hear to feel like, Oh yeah. Like I've done something worthwhile, you know, huge. And, you know, and I used to say, Oh, well, like, journalism is not in the business of saving lives but i do have to say i think you've you've saved i don't know i don't know what, how many lives just by by being it has to be said categorically and that's one thing also in so many ways you know um so much so, so much credit to robert f kennedy junior i remember in the early 
Yes, for his, for his book, absolutely, that was huge. But also for something he said in the in the very beginning, he said in a broadcast, um, "Do not take this these shots under any circumstances." And I just remember something about the phrasing "under any circumstances" that felt like those. That's like let's those are spell breaking words. Yeah. And so the important thing was to kind of just, you know, throw it down in the beginning and not, not, um, what's, what's the word, um, equivocate, equivocate and say, well, maybe it's good for some people here or there. Maybe some people should take it or take it of you. I mean, now I think everybody wishes that they had just taken the, basically the InfoWars position. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's. I'm surprised how many people took it. Like, I I can't believe how many people took it. How many, how many people that's that that were that seemed that I assumed were kind of aware of the fact that you don't trust these people, you know, and yet people still decided to trust them. Or I don't understand. It, it was one of the most mind-boggling things. I couldn't believe how many people people put the mask on. Like before, COVID was a huge lesson in my life. It's changed me over the past few years. I'm a much different person than I was a few years ago, just based on what I've learned about uh, my community, the people I live, you know, people I live with in the world, you know? Yeah. But do you remember the, uh, do you remember the AIDS psyop when um, they shifted it from it's a, it's a gay disease to it's coming for heterosexuals? Yeah. He can get it. Any broken condom, yeah, all of that. Because I was so inside this intense research trauma bubble, right? So it's I always ask people, "Do you remember?" Because what what never happened was that people blew up in rage when it failed to happen after five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years. They had this explosion we were promised, right? The 90 million Americans that were supposed to be dead, according to Oprah Winfrey, by the year 1990, these kinds of things. So it didn't happen. But people didn't say, who lied? Where did the lie begin? I'm angry. You traumatized me. You were lying. So Fauci sailed right off into, you know, and, and that's was one of the, I think people felt like, well, Okay, maybe it's because everybody practiced safer sex. Yeah, right. People invented reasons why this wasn't a malicious, traumatizing, trauma-based mind control lie that had great detrimental impact on their lives and wasn't true and was known to be a lie. And this I document in my book that they knew they were lying about the head and they sold it to heterosexuals to raise more money through life magazine that went through Matilda Krim at Amphar on and on. This is all in my book. So in my book, you can really see all the, all the wires, exactly how they, how they built, how they built the lying machine that was AIDS. But, but what I wonder when I speak to people who weren't, you know, in that where I was is, okay, you remember the terror you remember, how did you feel when it didn't happen? Did you just feel like, I don't just mean you, Gregory. I mean, like everybody, like, why didn't we get mad? You know what I'm saying? Why didn't we demand accountability? Well, that's a great question. And I, and I, it was a huge thing. Like when you were talking about, uh, that was sort of the, uh, the main 
impetus, I don't know if that's the right word, to get you to not report on it was the idea that uh, it might hurt people because, you know, people might think it's safe to go out and have unprotected sex and stuff. And I definitely remember growing up in that era where that became a, a big fear tactic. People felt like if you couldn't have, you know, if, if you had casual sex or unprotected sex, you were going to get AIDS and die. Uh, there was comedians that, you know, there was a joke going on around, uh, you know, the cure for AIDS. You know, once AIDS gets cured, it's, everything's going to be a party and sex in the streets and all that stuff, as if that's some sort of incredible thing that we're missing out on, you know. Um, so, yeah, I remember all that. And then uh, you're right. It just sort of never, it was almost like a joke, actually. I remember when I was a young, well, in the, in the 80s, I was, you know, what was I, a teenager through the 80s. And so... Um, I remember, and I grew up also, uh, thank God I grew up with this very strong distrust for the government and, and big pharma and basically any organization I just assumed was lying. Um, which is, I think a very, I first, I, for a while I thought it was crazy, but COVID has proven that that was a good stance to be. But so, yeah, I can't really speak personally because I wasn't surprised nothing came of it, but that was a huge deal. They were making a big deal out of it. They were, you know, people were changing their lives, um, and they were killing people just like they were doing with COVID. Right. And then there were the minor ones, right? There was the SARS, bird flu, um, Zika. I can't remember them all. Zika yeah. was, was a particularly spectacular, spectacularly clear Fauci. And, you know, he just stood up in Congress and said, that was in the Obama era. They, he, I forget what the number was. They needed 90, if they didn't get 92 million dollars that would mean all these people were going to die you know and there wasn't one case of zika in the united states and naturally it was caused by chemicals agricultural runoff as the as the as the honest doctors uh testified to in um primarily or i believe it was in argentina i can't be entirely sure about that in other words the uh the shrunken heads the the um microcephaly that Tony Fauci stood with a straight face and said came from a virus, came from a mosquito, came from a, you know, so this is his thing, right? I have a virus. It's going to kill everybody. It came from wherever, whatever, zoonotic, and I need a lot of money and I need it now, right? Yeah. So that's his, it's always been his formula and it's just completely breathtaking the amount of damage he's done. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Now, um, we've talked before personally carnage about... is the word, not damage, carnage. Carnage, yeah. No, he's... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. He continues to walk freely amongst us, you know, and he makes everyone... Dr. Mengele, the doctor of death, has this sort of uh, cartoonish, you know, uh, legendary mythos to him, whereas Fauci makes Dr. Mengele look like, you know, your nice, cool uncle or whatever. I mean, it's ridiculous, the, the, the amount that Fauci has under him. Um, not much has changed. Uh, things have just gotten bigger and, and uh, deadlier. Uh, well, I'll say this about just one thing about, about Fauci and Fauciism. If you, look, if you step back and look at this whole, like, as I've spent most of my life doing, and I'm not, I'm, I never focused as much on, that much on Fauci alone. My focus shifted to him more actually since um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote his book. We tended to focus on Robert Gallo. But leaving that aside, Fauciism 
it involves inducing Americans to believe that a single a single pathogen can kill them. They can catch it from any from a person, from a surface, from a body fluid. You know, AIDS sometimes he shifted it to you could get it from a toilet seat. Next week it was a salad leaf, and then it was casual contact in the home. So it's always could, 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 could. So if you look at like the sorcery and the formula, it's this kind of forward projecting, scaring people in his deadpan Faucian way about what could happen with that strange authority that people seem to think he exudes. So that's part one of it. What could happen? It's never clear. It's never precise. And when he's wrong, he's completely, he's completely shameless. And there's never a connection between what he says and anybody getting better. So at the same time as he's saying, it's really bad, it's really bad, he's spreading the panic, he's bringing the money in. Nobody's saying, well, if it's so bad, isn't it your job to make it better? Isn't it your job that there are fewer cases and fewer people sick and fewer people dying? But you'll notice he's not interested in that at all. I don't know if you remember the tension between Trump and Fauci in those early press conferences and Trump was saying, but people recover. And he was counting at a certain time. Trump was counting the numbers of people who who were hospitalized with what was called COVID and came out of the hospital recovered. He was interested in that, which meant that he didn't at the time um, speak the Fauci and creed, if that makes sense. Yeah which is a total, um, it's almost like, I don't know if this is a satanic thing. You know a lot about these principles of say, like that you say, it's like saying one thing out of one side. It's it's a total contradiction in the same yeah. state. Well, I think they just do that um, cognitive dissonance. It's a, uh, it's, it's more, uh, I guess it's satanic in the sense that it's, it's sort of a psychology used in a dark way against people. Uh, but it's as simple as it, it sort of, uh, dis, uh, creates a, a circuit break almost inside the brain. Um, when you're throwing two different, uh, contradictory things, the brain, it doesn't feel good for the brain to, to sort of try to deal with that. So they'll just, uh, shut down and accept whatever they're being told. That's basically Fauci's whole whole game is the is he's got a he's got a way of talking he's got a you know that smooth uh forked tongue and uh constant cognitive dissonance exactly and the support of the entire system behind him to you know prop him up and and he was how was the cult of fauci created the cult of fauci was 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 fomented you know aids was his thing he comes in in 1984 and of course, it, you know everybody knows about what was supposedly a big conflict between Fauci and the and the AIDS activists. Act up, Larry Kramer, and that Larry Kramer and Anthony Fauci sat on a bench and made peace and decided to move forward together. And Fauci invited the AIDS activists to come to the table at the NIH, and they started dictating what drugs, what the they dictated the approval time of AZT. A drug was on average took 10 years to get a drug approved by the FDA before the, before Fauci brings the activists in as um, at uh, the, players, isn't the word as well. They had, they had 
they had power. You might say that they were used as such. They were used as they were used and they so so everybody's kind of using each other and pharma's laughing all the way to the bank because the activists were demanding the 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 implosion of the FDA safety safety and efficacy drug approval process, which was slow and arduous at the time. What I was always told was it took on average 10 years to get a drug through to approval because it was understood people could die. So first you do safety testing, then you slowly work into efficacy. And then, you know, whereas the activists came in and said, and the first drug was the first drug in question was AZT. They said, we want this now. We're dying now. The emerge- So it's like this emergency medicine, emergency public health ethos comes in where they successfully equate taking time to test a remedy, a drug with murder. So if you take time to test it, you're killing this victim group. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say 10 years because I just interviewed uh, Rick DeSantis, who's a 9-11 survivor, and he's got a theory about uh, soft kill operations that he says uh, he he came up with it from being a 9-11 survivor, but he says the same thing happened with um, Desert Storm vets with the uh, Desert Storm syndrome and Vietnam vets and 9-11 survivors, which is basically where they sort of deny all their symptoms for about 10 years he said it took 10 years as a 9-11 survivor before they started saying, okay, I guess these, you know, you guys do have these problems and we do need to do something about it. And so he's, he's, he's got a pretty good argument that they do this with all these events. And the idea is, is probably they had some insurance company come up with an idea that said, hey, if you just wait 10 years and deny everything for 10 years, then a lot of people are going to be dead by then and or give up by then. It'll like, you know, I'm sure there's some. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 you know, the, the way the, even, you know, I know it's so devastating, but Trump and desert, des, I almost said desert storm, forgive me. What was it called? Light speed. <laughs> no, it's or almost. Warp, warp speed. speed. Yeah. Warp Operation speed. warp speed. Yeah. Is actually this like monster mutation of this thing I'm talking about of act up saying we need AZT approved AZT, which wound up killing it is estimated about 300,000 mostly gay men in the high doses. Warp speed is part is, is one of the, like probably the worst fruit so far of this mentality, which is get it, you know? Yeah. Even the right name warp speed, it's like, wait, wait, yeah. wait, 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 you know, this is talking about an experimental vaccine uh, for something that, that, that isn't, you know, and, and I think, you know, for those of us paying attention who aren't completely, you know, engrossed with the mainstream media and, 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 you know, those of us who question it, I think realize there really wasn't that big of a deal. People, it's not like people were dying. Right. So right. You're gonna... I, I don't, I think people have to now Americans really have to now come out of this and say, okay, so health take sickness takes a long time. Health takes a long time. It, it, it depends on so many factors. There aren't these like sudden, sudden diseases. It's like, this is a bite. This is a military industrial complex thing there's an enemy and it's yeah. here we gotta go to war and we gotta be now we gotta bomb it like all these ideas are are crazy and um the good news of it all is so many people get it now and the devastation is that so many people took the shots and they're um 
they're suffering in so many different ways. That's one of the most disturbing things is like every day you hear a new, it's like a new horrible thing that these shots are doing to people. It's not, it's not just a, a predictable set of symptoms. It's like, Oh yeah. Unimaginable stuff. Um, so I, I believe that the tide has turned hugely against, you know, and of course it's not about Fauci. He's a, he's a figurehead. He's a very malicious uh, force in the culture, but it's an entire, an entire mindset that has seeped into every level of American society, really. And yeah, he had a lot to do with it, but like, so do the, so does Monsanto, so do all the food companies, so does everybody's pediatrician, everybody's veterinarian. It's all over, right? Yeah. This mindset, like cure yourself with poison, cure your animal with poison, eat and drink poison, and then be very surprised when, why you got sick. Well, I do think that is some of the good news that's coming out of all this is that um, I don't see how big pharma can survive all this. Uh, it's gotten so big. I, you know, I mean, I, I don't expect miracles. I don't expect the whole world to turn into some golden age overnight. But what does seem clear is that millions of people are now starting to question these things finally, because like you're talking about you know, the poisons. I mean, there's, uh, everything's a poison these days. You know, what we consider food is a poison. There's poison in the water. There's poison in the air, the chemtrails, all this stuff. So, uh, finally people are starting to wake up to at least that, at least health and modern so-called modern medicine. Um, which is basically just, uh, if, if you can't cut something out of you, then give someone a drug. And, and what's so fantastic about that? So it's a good thing, I think. That's probably the best thing I, I've seen so far. So uh, for those of you watching, we're about to go into the second half for subscribers only. But make sure to check out Celia Farber's book, Serious Adverse Events and Uncensored History of AIDS. Her incredible work, that she did fighting Big Pharma back when it wasn't cool. <laughs>